Good morning, and welcome to chapel this Friday. This morning, we are privileged to introduce you to Gwen Gustafson Zook, our new halftime minister of worship. Gwen has served most recently with MCC Great Lakes as regional associate. Prior to that, she taught middle school Bible at Bethany Christian School for two years, pastored Faith Mennonite Church in Goshen from 1997 to 2005, and served with MCC in a variety of capacities in Portland, Jamaica, Denver, and Atlanta. She has worked closely with younger adults throughout her ministry. Gwen grew up in, in the Presbyterian Church, participated in a four-square church, and joined the Mennonite Church while in her mid-twenties, and was ordained with an MDiv from Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary. She is a gifted musician and storyteller, an excited relator to people of diverse backgrounds, and an intent listener. In her role with us at Goshen, she is working with chapel planning and other campus worship opportunities, supervising ministry leaders, and providing pastoral care to students. In her story of faith this morning, Gwen will be reflecting on 1 John 4, 7 through 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. We light this lamp this morning as a reminder of God's love among us. Let's turn to sing the journey number 27, God of the Bible, and stand to sing. Gwen will lead us.
But the more years pass, uh, the more difficult that task becomes. I sometimes wonder if I have one faith story, or if maybe it would be more accurate to say that I have faith stories, lots of them. Stories of those times in my life when I have been compelled to pay attention to the mysterious movement of the winds of the Spirit, calling me challenging me, and changing me. So today, lest I keep you here past lunch, I will simply share three among many stories of faith. I was 17 years old when I, along with my two sisters, got a phone call from the Emanuel Hospital in Portland, Oregon. My paternal grandmother was on the phone, my father's mother, in a shaky voice, she told us that we should get down to the hospital right away, that my father had suffered two massive brain aneurysms and wasn't expected to live through the night. Four years earlier, my father had left our family when I was 14, just about getting ready to enter high school. He'd left so that he could marry a woman he'd been having an affair with for quite a while, a woman who drank and smoked and fooled around as much as he did, so when he left, he sold our family's tent trailer and used the money that he got from the sale of that kind of family icon to take his new wife on a honeymoon to Hawaii. I was the youngest of four and had experienced my father's abandonment with anger and tears and great sadness. My father had been a very angry and violent and compulsive man. So though I was relieved to have his violent rages gone, I was hurt to the core by what I experienced as his betrayal. Among my siblings, I was the one who went to church most. I was the one who professed to believing in God and wanting to follow Jesus. When my father left, I realized that I was also the one that the church folks called sinner because I knew what it was to have hate in my heart. I hated my father, in spite of the biblical call to love as a sign of God present in us, to love even our enemies. I also had come to understand that I was broken and in need of a power greater than myself to sustain me. After hours and hours in the gym hitting a volleyball against the wall to let out my anger and my tears and my frustration, I had come in time to understand that, yes, I was imperfect, but loved by God, even if not fully by my own father. So my sisters and I got in the car and drove down I-84 toward the city in silence. We each bore our own pain hosted our own demons. We could hear my father before we could see him. My father swore a lot. And now, while under, profanity rang out, echoing down the corridor. How embarrassing. When we turned to step into the room, 
We were shocked to see my large, strong father strapped down to a gurney, flailing with all of his might, swearing up and down. He didn't know who was in the room, let alone who we were. He just kept flailing and swearing every word in the book. On our way out of the hospital, my grandmother told us that if the doctors didn't operate soon, that he would die. But he wasn't stable enough to operate. She said he had 10% chance of living. Driving home, the rain pelted on the windshield, and I found myself thinking, in Oregon, when there is 10% chance of rain, it rains. I began to pray that he would live. My prayers were fundamentally selfish. I was praying for my sake, not for his. My parents had instilled in me a healthy sense of guilt. And I knew that I would feel guilty forever if he died when I hadn't resolved this hatred that I had toward him. So in a considerably less than altruistic way, I prayed and I cried and I begged. And for whatever reason, my father lived. But he lost his ability to speak and to write in the process. The words he had heard in his head couldn't get out his mouth. Over the next 30 years, many new pathways would form in his brain, and he would gradually regain some of his ability to communicate. But it was not without major frustration and effort. He eventually shared with me that while he was under, he had an experience with God. He said he was taken to the bad place, where people were angry, and he begged not to be left there. And then they showed him the other place, where people were happy. And he decided that he didn't want to end up in that angry place. So on the spot, and with considerable effort, he made the decision to change his life if he had another chance. So he, when he revived, he quit smoking, he quit drinking, he worked very hard to control his temper and his sexual urges. He began praying and reading his Bible in the best of his ability. In some ways, his life had destroyed him, or his life was destroyed by the aneurysms. But he would regularly say that his aneurysms were the best thing that ever happened to him. He never again was able to say my name. He always called me the youngest one. My father's theology and my theology were worlds apart. But somehow now I look back and I think maybe it was semantics. We both knew what it was to be broken and wounded. And we both knew what it was to experience God's presence and healing and love in our lives, made real by an encounter with forgiveness. My faith was, in some ways, formed as much by my experience with my father as it was by my experience in the church, which was good, and where I learned the basics of orthodox theology, that we are saved from sin by the gracious gift of Jesus' life on the cross. 
But what I learned from my father was that all human beings are complicated, all of us. We each have our places of brokenness and woundedness, and it's very easy to hurt each other out of those places of brokenness. Ultimately, humans long to experience healing and some degree of wholeness so that we can experience and share in joy and happiness and ultimately love. And I wonder, is this wholeness, this healing, this salve, not what it is to experience salvation? Please turn in your hymnals to number 371, Let There Be Light. On a sunny Sunday morning in Atlanta, I walked into the church and knew immediately that something was wrong. There was no prelude music, and small groups of people were speaking together in hushed tones. Once the folks were seated, the pastor walked to the podium and said, we have a problem, and we, as the church, need to figure out what to do about it. The pastor proceeded to explain the situation. A man in our neighborhood, we'll call him Hawk, had recently been released from prison where he had been serving time for drug charges. We all knew Hawk. He'd been a fixture in the neighborhood for a long time, as long as we knew. His daughter, who had some challenges, was a regular in our Mennonite Central Committee house on Grant Street, and she was also a regular participant in the neighborhood church. Hawk had begun coming to church after his release from prison, 
While in prison, he had made the decision to, as he said, turn his life over to Jesus and to rely on the power of God to enable him to get out of the drug trade. This was no small think, thing. Think the wire if you have any doubt about the complexity and the dangers involved in this decision. Hawk was known as a drug kingpin for the Southwest United States. His decision put him in grave danger. A few days earlier, Hawk had been picked up, <clears throat> driven to a dark alley, and threatened with his life. In a scuffle that ensued, he had shot his pursuer in the leg. He managed to get away, but now his life was on the line. As the pastor relayed this story, Hawk was holed up in his house three blocks from the church. His sons were stationed as lookouts on the front porch with guns at their sides. And so we, the church, talked and prayed and listened. Then someone said, if Hawk can't be here, then we need to be there. And it was agreed. We would all process from the church building to Hawk's front yard. Someone ran downstairs and found some grape juice in the refrigerator and a loaf of stale bread from the pantry. Someone else quickly made a sign reading, God loves you. A few of us grabbed guitars and we headed out into the street with hearts beating more quickly than usual for a Sunday morning. Making our way down Georgia Avenue and up Hill Street, we sang, I'm going to lay down my burdens down by the riverside. And this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. When we got to Hawk's small front yard, the crowd of 45 people, black and white, rich and poor, Baptist and Mennonite, kept singing, over my head I hear music in the air, there must be a God somewhere. And we shall not, we shall not be moved. Hand in hand together, we shall not be moved. Hawk slowly stepped out onto his porch and received the bread and the holy grape juice. This is the body of Christ, broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The bread and the cup were passed among us as we sang, let us break bread together on our knees. O Lord, have mercy on me. As the bread and the cup were being shared, some of us standing toward the back of the crowd saw a white Cadillac turn onto Hill Street, heading in our direction. I'm quite sure that those of us who saw that car all sang, O Lord, have mercy on us with a new sense of urgency, a greater sense of urgency than ever before. In our neighborhood, Cadillacs were reserved for the dealers, but that Cadillac didn't make it to the hot top of the hill where a motley crowd of Jesus followers stood in solidarity with the drug kingpin. Seeing the crowd gathered, the car turned down a side street, and those of us who saw it breathed a sigh of relief as we joined in singing, Oh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome someday. It's not that life got easy for Hawk after that. 
It's just that on that Sunday morning, the church did what it needed to do. You could say we participated with what God was doing in the world that Sunday morning. And some of us bore witness to the mighty power of God and the love of Jesus made manifest in Hawk's front yard. Please turn to number 18 and sing the journey if you need the words to sing, Over my head I hear music in the air. And go ahead and stand up for this one.
During the second week of September in the fall of 2007, the president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, was in New York City. Speaking at Columbia University, Ahmadinejad was rather rudely chastised by the university president. Meanwhile, Mennonite Central Committee workers, along with religious leaders in New York, were about to host a dinner for the Iranian leader. I was particularly aware of the mounting tensions because one week earlier, I had been given an invitation to join in an MCC learning tour to Iran that would be leaving December 26th of that year. Initially, I had been very excited, but once the heated rhetoric hit the airwaves, I found myself getting quite nervous. A knot took up permanent residence in my stomach. And week after week, I asked myself, what am I doing? At one point, I called Evie Schellenberger, past Mennonite Central Committee Iran worker, and one of the leaders of the Iran Learning Tour. And I asked Evie, is it really safe? She assured me that during her three years in Iran, she had felt very safe. She also diplomatically assured me that what I was suffering from was a distortion and fear created by our politicians and our media. Iran was not a scary place. So I took a deep breath and I carried on, making plans, applying for my visa, gathering headscarves and long jackets, and reading everything that I could find on Iran, and praying. Nevertheless, as December rolled around, the fear remained along with the knot in my stomach. During a church retreat in early December, I confided in a woman at my church that I was feeling pretty fearful at this point. And she approached me the next day and handed me a poem that happened to be the words of the Sing the Journey number 77 song, The Peace of the Earth Be With You. And she told me that she would pray that for me every day until I returned from Iran. In the days leading up to Christmas, I felt increasingly calm. Not knowing what lay ahead, though, I wrote letters to each of my children and to my husband and put them in a file telling my husband that if I didn't come home, he should get them out and pass them to each person. The fact that I was thinking that I might not come home now seems, well, rather silly. But at the time, it felt like one way to deal with my fears. And by the time my bags were packed on December 26th, I was feeling quite at peace about the whole thing. When our plane finally took off from the Toronto airport, the song of peace filled my head for me and for all of us who were taking part in this peace-building delegation. What I found in Iran was as Evie had foretold. I had seen more guns in the O'Hare airport than I saw the whole two weeks in Iran. And while I struggled to adjust to the hijab and the gender issues, I certainly didn't feel in danger. On the contrary, I was struck by the hospitality and the kindness of strangers in Iran. People readily engaged in conversation and offered gestures of welcome as we made our way through the streets of Tehran and the gardens of Kashan and the palaces and mosques of Esfahan. It was in Esfahan, after singing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow, in 
a 400-year-old mosque in four-part harmony and hearing the sound resonate and bounce off the stone tile and fill the open space, that I realized how narrow and self-centered my prayers for peace had been. While I had been obsessed with my own safety, the greater danger was and is very likely that my country or my country's allies would bomb the generous people and the beautiful and ancient palaces and bridges of what has long been known as Persia. Standing at the reflection pool in the center of the square in Esfahan, tears filled my eyes as I sang that song in my head once again, this time praying for Iran and for all of those who know Iran as home. The peace of the earth be with you. The peace of the heavens too. The peace of the rivers be with you. The peace of the ocean too. Deep peace falling over you. God's peace flowing in you. One final thing I've learned over the years. God shows up. This is really God's gig. I suppose that's why I'm more convinced today than I have ever been in my life, that God is indeed ever-present. And that is ultimately much more about God, this stuff that we do on this earth, than it is about me. That's not to say that I don't have a role, but it is to say that I am a vessel. And hopefully, I will be a vessel that shares love freely and broadly, not only with those closest to me, not only with a church family, but globally. One of my favorite Persian poets, Hafez, put it this way 700 years ago, I am a hole in a flute that the Christ's breath moves through. Listen to this music. Hafez. Please turn to number 77 in Sing the Journey and join me in singing, The Peace of the Earth Be With You. And as we sing this, I invite you to sing it as prayer, not only for yourself, not only for those next to you, but for all whom God has created around the world. I'll sing through twice.
at this time we'd like to bless Gwen in her new role here with us. So Gwen, if you'll come up here. Um, so I'd invite you to all stand. We'll be laying our hands on her, but if you would like, extend an arm towards Gwen as we pray. Gwen, we welcome you with open arms into our community here at Goshen College. May your time here be filled with holy mystery, profound grace, and rich relationship. May your hands work in a way that strengthens and touch in a way that nurtures. May your feet lead you down unexpected side streets, revealing Jesus' call to you and to us. May your eyes witness for us the blessings of creation we sometimes forget to see and God's work that is yet to be done. May your words enrich our worship, challenge our living, and encourage our service. Amen. Thank you. Let's sing one closing song since you're already standing up. Why don't you stay standing up? Number 97, the Lord is my light and my salvation. In the, in the green, sing the journey.
to the world to share love. Amen.